0: You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Revelation. Here's Nate. In one sense, the ability to properly understand the book of Revelation comes from properly understanding the severity of the cross of Christ. In the book of Revelation, we read of darkness, we read of the moon turning to or having the appearance of blood, the sun losing its light, stars falling from heaven. We read of cataclysmic disaster, we read of seals being loosed, trumpets being blasted, bowls being poured out, which are filled with the judgment and the wrath of God. And I think the innocent bystander could sort of read these texts and see these truths foreshadowed and really have a serious question about the justice and the fairness of God. But when you look upon the cross of Christ, you realize how serious God is about sin. You see that there was darkness over the land for those three hours that Jesus was atoning for the sin of the world. There was silence. There were earthquakes. It was a horrible moment as God was pouring out his wrath upon his own son. It says that he who knew no sin became sin for us on the cross to the point that Jesus cried out to his father and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we understand, of course, that at the cross there was the horrible moment of God pouring out his wrath upon his innocent son. And he did that, of course, out of great love for you and for me, and of course in a predetermined plan between father and son. And so you see the great love of God for mankind, but also the deep, deep hatred of sin. And for man to reject that message. Well, we're reading in Revelation of what God will do in response to the rejection of the message of the gospel. Now, I've said it before, but the book of Revelation is the only book that comes with its own divine outline. Jesus told John in Revelation Chapter 1, verse 19, he said, John, write the things that you have seen. That's Revelation chapter 1. Everything up to that point in verse 19. All the stuff that John had seen at that point. He had seen, basically, the ascended glorified Jesus. His hair white like wool. His eyes of fire. His feet like fine bronze. His garments of linen girded around his uh, chest, uh, he ready to work. He he saw Jesus. He heard Jesus. The the beginning, uh, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. He he heard, he saw, and so John writes all of that. And then Jesus said, also, he said, and write the things which are, which are, and the things in the book of Revelation which were at the time of of John, were the. Seven churches of Asia Minor, Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus writes seven letters to these seven churches. And then he says, and record and write the things which take place after this. And chapter 4, verse 1, the, the phrase after this is repeated twice. And so chapter 4 all the way through the end of the book are the things which will take place in uh, the future. Chapter 4, verse Uh, John goes and sees a vision of heaven. He sees the throne room of God in chapter 4, and then he sees a scroll in the hand of God in chapter 5, which becomes the centerpiece of the rest of the book of Revelation. And that book, uh, in one sense, seems to be the title deed to the earth, but it is sealed, and no one is found worthy to open the scroll or to loose its seals. And John begins to weep, Until an angel says to him, don't worry, here comes the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb that was slain, he was found worthy to open the scroll, to loose its seals. And so Jesus began to loose the seals and we saw in chapter 6 some horrible events that unfolded in the first six seals. You see the Antichrist revealed. You see military disaster uh, throughout the world, war taking place throughout the world. You see the economy collapsing. You see uh, death as a result of those elements. You see great martyrdom as many people lose their lives for the belief in the gospel. And you see uh, the... uh, Cataclysmic events of the sun becoming black and the moon becoming like blood. And then in chapter 7, there's a parenthesis. And the parenthesis merely records the 144,000 Jewish super witnesses who will preach the gospel on earth during this time of great tribulation. And they will preach it with great effectiveness. Many people will give their lives. To the Lord. There will be great celebration. Many people will lose their lives as martyrs, but many people will will receive uh, the gospel as they hear it. That brings us now to the end of the parentheses at the end of chapter 7 to the opening of the seventh seal in Revelation chapter 8. Verse 1 When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Uh, Up until this point in heaven, it's been loud celebration. It's been boisterous praise. It's been holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's been the casting down of crowns. It's been wonderful prayers and celebration. But now, total silence. It's as if gravity is setting in as this seventh seal is opened. All the first six seals were harmful enough, but in this seventh seal, which contains seven trumpets, and in the seventh trumpet is contained seven bowls or vials, We'll see that each one of these elements by its own stand alone is bad enough, but when you combine them all together and realize that they are all wrapped up in this last and final seal that Jesus opened, you realize the awesomeness, the gravity of what's taking place. Just total silence. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20, speaking of the judgment and the wrath of God, He says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Just imagine how ominous this moment is going to be. Thousands and millions, perhaps billions of souls, billions of people in the presence of God, yet total silence. I think there's going to be that silence because of the the gravity, the horror, the awe, so to speak, of what's about to take place, and just simple anticipation for what is about to come. Now, the timing of this event, of course, is a big question for us. When is the seal going to be opened up during that time of great tribulation, and uh, for me, I believe that about 21 months or three and a half years or so into the great tribulation, not quite at the three and a half year mark, this seal will be opened, and all hell is going to break loose. It's going to be an incredible time here on planet earth. And I believe, of course, as I've been saying all along, that the church will not be present Uh, For this here on earth that the church will have been called home to meet the Lord in the air as Paul says in 1st Corinthians 15 and in 1st Thessalonians chapter 4. But this will be an awful moment. And so he says in verse 2 he says then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And so. There are these seven angels. Each one of them comes out as a result of the opening of this seventh seal. And now each one of them has a trumpet. So there are seven angels with one trumpet apiece. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And so uh, Gabriel perhaps it, it tells us in Luke chapter 1 verse 19 that Gabriel stands in the presence of God. And here in verse 2 we have seven angels who stand before God. And another angel comes. And he has this golden censer. And there's much incense in that censer. And he offers it with the prayers of all the saints. The smoke of the incense rises to God before these seven trumpets begin to blast. Now, of course, we already saw this in the throne room of God that the prayers of the saints were kept like incense in God's presence, stored up in a golden bowl, that God would keep the prayers of the saints. We've already seen that. And of course, this idea that the prayers of the saints are uh, ascending to God like incense, this is very reminiscent, of course, of the, the temple or the tabernacle. Because there in the tabernacle, there was the incense that would burn before God in the holy place, And it would actually, of course, waft back behind the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And so, uh, you know, but that's a symbol, of course, of the heavenly reality. And so just the beauty of the prayers of the saints to God, it's like incense to him. And I think it's good for us to point out, at least at this point, that God loves prayer. God looks for prayer in his people. You might remember there when Jesus went to the temple at the end of his earthly ministry, the week before he was crucified. He, with great anticipation, rode into Jerusalem. The people laid down uh, palm branches before the Lord and they were singing Hosanna, save now, and crying out to him. It was a moment of great anticipation. And true to their wildest dreams and hopes, he went directly to the Temple Mount. But contrary to their dreams and hopes, he really didn't do anything at the Temple Mount. He, it says in Mark chapter 11 at least, just looked around at all things. He left spent the night in Bethany with his disciples, and then the following day went back to the temple, cleared out the temple of the money changers and those that were buying and selling. He cried out and said, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of thieves. What was Jesus looking for? I believe personally that he had done this thing three years previous, and that at that moment, He's declaring, listen, I I came looking for prayer, and I'm not finding it. I'm finding activity, I see religiosity, but I'm not seeing prayer. And it's a humbling reminder for us of the reality that God absolutely adores and loves and longs for his people to be a people of prayer. He loves it for us as his disciples. He longs for us to be a people of prayer. You remember when Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, he looked at his disciples and said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The Lord desires for us to be a people who cry out to him. And I think one of the things that's so difficult for believers about prayer is that I mean, there are a lot of things that can be difficult, but I think a couple of problems that we sometimes have in prayer is that we believe that our feelings have to be very much a part of things. But that's not the case. We don't need to have strong feelings necessarily. What we really need is strong faith, a real belief and a real trust that God hears our cry because of the blood of Jesus, that we have access to boldly approach his throne to find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need so I believe that if we could drive out the sense of that our feelings need to be there and to drive out our fear by having this true strong faith in God in prayer I believe that we'd get a little bit further but I also think another thing that that is necessary in prayer is a little bit of divine specificity In other words, I think a lot of times in prayer, we are so vague and we're so general. And if we just stop for a moment to think about how we're praying, I don't think we would talk to anybody on earth in that way. With those kind of generalities. Now, to be specific before God, I think at times, can be crucial in our lives of prayer. I understand, of course, that we want to say, Lord, not as I will, but as you will. Your will be done. But it is good for us to specifically bring our prayers and our heart and our concerns before the Lord. But, of course, what is one of the prayers that we have been praying as God's people for so long? Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here now, as there's silence in heaven and the prayers ascend to God, really what we're seeing is the ultimate answer of that prayer, the collective prayer of God's people over the centuries. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This prayer is now going to be fulfilled, beginning here with this Seventh seal. So the angel, verse 5, took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. God moved by the prayers of his people, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, verse 6, we begin to see these trumpets that are inside the seal. First trumpet, it says in verse 6, Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Now, of course, with the blowing of trumpets, there is a little bit of biblical imagery there. You, of course, in reading the Old Testament, you see that the blowing of trumpets were was used at times for uh, sounding an alarm for God's people or panic for God's people, or, or at times uh, a message to assemble for war. And so the trumpets being blast indicate in one sense war. Uh, war from God against mankind, really. And we'll see the culmination of this in a few chapters. And so the first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up. And all green grass was burned up. And so we have a massive ecological disaster here in this first angel and the first trumpet. And uh, this is interesting. I mean, in in one sense, God is really striking and judging the creation. You've got a third of the earth and a third of the trees and all of the green grass burned up. So this is quite a judgment that takes place upon the earth. Now, of course, the big question here is, are these judgments of God are they literal and they really don't read as if they're mere imagery they read as if they're literal in fact when you read of these judgments you can't help but notice that they are very eerily similar to the judgments of God upon the nation of Egypt in the book of Exodus and of course when reading that None of us would approach it as if it's imagery. We would approach it as if it actually occurred and actually happened. And so here we see that God begins to judge. And here he judges a portion of the creation. And then uh, verse 8. So the second angel blew his trumpet. And something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. And so here, a great judgment upon the ocean, upon the sea. And of course, you see that John is attempting to describe these events as best as he possibly can. The things that he's seeing and observing, he says here, something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And so... You know, of course, the question is, well, what is it? What was he seeing? And of course, because he says something like uh, a great mountain burning with fire, because he says something like, some people go into symbolism at this point and And, you know, mountains and scripture oftentimes are, are uh, images of nations. And so some would say, well, this is some kind of judged nation that God is Throwing into the sea. It's a symbol of him judging a nation. But on my part, I think that John is actually seeing some kind of meteor, some kind of large mountain burning with fire, being thrown into the literal sea. And you see there that a third of the sea becomes blood or like blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed. It's just horror on the ocean. Now, Verse 10, the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So the first thing to be judged is the vegetation, basically. Then you have the ocean. And now you're, here you have the fresh water supply that's that's judged. And, and uh, out of heaven comes this star that's named Wormwood, and it strikes the fresh water supply. And a third of the fresh water supply is destroyed. Many people die from drinking it because it had become bitter. And, uh, you know, Wormwood... Is uh, The question is, well, what is this wormwood? And uh, this is the first time that it's mentioned in the New Testament. But it's mentioned seven times in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 29, Proverbs 5, Jeremiah 9, Jeremiah 23, Lamentations 3, uh, Amos chapter 5. It's mentioned time and time again. And uh, many people point to that it's a bitter desert plant. And uh, so this Wormwood actually poisons the water supply. Probably, it's not that John is seeing a desert plant fall out of the sky. He says he sees a great star, but he names it Wormwood because it has the same effect on the water as that Old Testament plant would have had. And so the fresh water supply is judged. The fourth angel, verse 12, blew his trumpet. And a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. So God strikes the sun, he strikes the moon, he strikes stars and a third of the night is taken from planet earth. This is interesting in one sense because God has given testimony to his great faithfulness through the solar system. The faithfulness of the sun and the faithfulness of the seasons, the faithfulness of a time for planting and a time for harvest. The faithfulness of God is demonstrated in the consistency of the solar system. But Most of mankind has not appreciated what God has done. And so here God begins to take the very thing that they did not appreciate away. But I think as well in this entire chapter, these first four trumpets, we're seeing that God is destroying something that truly testified of him. Paul said in Romans chapter 1 that through creation... Uh, some of the invisible attributes of God were able to be seen. And so God begins to judge the very thing or strike the very thing that should have caused the people to believe in the invisible God, should have pointed to God. He's destroying something that has testified of him. But in another sense altogether, God is destroying what has become their God. As Paul said in Romans chapter 1, they served the creature rather than the creator. And the created order, the sun, the moon, the stars, planet earth, uh, it's nothing new, there's nothing new under the sun, but mankind has been worshipping the created being, the creation For a very long time. For a very long time. And God begins to destroy their God. I mean, this kind of thing is obvious in the world that we live in. You know, at least in my state, it's much easier to get an abortion and to take a human life than it is to get a building permit. You know, you have to get an environmental impact report and, you know, make sure that there's no endangered species and all of these different things. And, you know, the reality is I'm definitely for that. But the cavalier attitude that is taken when it comes to the stuff that God values. It's just the priorities are backwards. And here God begins to judge The very thing that had become the God of the people. Now to close out the chapter, it says in verse 13, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So there are three trumpets left. And this eagle flying in the sky cries out, woe, woe, woe. Three woes for those three trumpets. And personally, I think that at this point, these last three trumpets really could be the final three and a half years. Not everyone feels that way. But the final three and a half years really could come at the blowing of the fifth, sixth, and seventh seal or uh, trumpet. And so... Just a horrible time. And this is preparatory of the things to come. And so in chapter 9, we'll see the fifth angel blast his trumpet. Woe upon the earth. And so I think it's obvious that God takes sin very seriously. And would to God that we would walk with him, love him, repent of sin, and uh, enjoy our God in this life. God bless you. And amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.